following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Uh, this is session number two of A Wizard of Earthsea. Having gotten not nearly so far as I wanted to get because we were distracted by the five-line poem at the beginning, we are going to make some progress tonight. That is what is going to happen. First, quick announcement, just one single announcement, and that is... Baymoot, our next regional moot, the last regional moot of 2019, is coming up next weekend. That is one week from this weekend. Saturday week, I will be in Berkeley, California for Baymoot. Uh, and really looking forward to seeing folks there. Uh, we had such a wonderful time at Baymoot last year. This is our second Baymoot. We were in Oakland last year, moving up to Berkeley this year. Um, it's going to be uh, uh, it's it's going to be awesome to f see folks again. If you're anywhere near the San Francisco Bay Area, I hope that you will come. Uh, it's a uh, uh, the deadline for registering, Veronica. As far as I know, you can register right up to normally. The one thing that gets a little iffy uh, if the registration goes like right at the last second is lunch, because of course we have to like tell people how much food to have and stuff. So. Um, so, you know, lunch is, lunch is part of it. So, uh, anyway, but, but I believe you can register, uh, right up to, so, um, definitely, uh, definitely register if you can. Um, it's 40 bucks for the day, including lunch. And then we'll, we'll all go out to eat afterwards. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really fun day. So I hope that you guys will, uh, as many of you can, will be able to join me there, uh, at Baymoot next weekend. Can't wait to get back out to the West coast. Um, uh, next week. So, all right. So that is the, that is the, event. and I think actually the call for presentations is still open, right? The call for proposals. Um, so if you want to propose, yeah, of course, if there's a, if there's something that you want to present on, like if you have a, you know, a, a, a paper, a topic you would like to present on, that's great. Um, even if you have like a, a topic you'd like to discuss, you know, you want to sort of lead a discussion, uh, uh, that would also be cool. So anyway, um, just, uh, so the information, all the information for that is if you go to signumuniversity.org slash events, uh, you'll see the Baymoot page, uh, and you can see all the information there, the call for papers, as well as the registration link, uh, to register. So, um, definitely wanted to draw your attention to that. Okay. Let us get back to Gaunt here. Um, we've been spending a lot of time focusing on... Um, uh, the, well, I was about to say the setting, but it's not quite right, right? The world, uh, the world building here, um, trying to figure out Earthsea, how it works, and especially magic and what magic is about and how it works. And of course, we learn much more about that, um, uh, today and once we get to Roke. Uh, so we're gonna, we're gonna continue that, but of course, we're also gonna be looking a lot at, uh, Sparrowhawk's development himself as a character, and by the way, that's one interesting element, right, of that whole thing. Uh, that uh, that is Sparrowhawk's name, uh, and we'll get to that. Uh, we should get to the pa his naming passage today. Um, but um, even what to call that character is uh, something that I'm like not a hundred percent sure exactly what's the right way to discuss it, right? Um, but um, anyway, okay, so let's. Um, uh, let's keep going. Let's pick up where we left off last time. 
Uh, and that was right after his binding by the witch. Remember, he was bound, and then we uh, uh, we began to see him do some uh, magic of his own. We began to learn more about uh, the the witch, uh, the village witch, right? Uh, his aunt. Okay. As the witch kept talking of the glory and the riches and the great power over men that a sorcerer could gain, he set himself to learn more useful lore. He was very quick at it. The witch praised him, and the children of the village began to fear him, and he himself was sure that very soon he would become great among men. So he went on from word to word and from spell to spell with the witch, till he was twelve years old, and had learned from her a great part of what she knew. Not much, but enough for a witchwife of a small village, and more than enough for a boy of twelve. She had taught him all her lore in herbals and healing, and all she knew of the crafts of finding, binding, mending, unsealing, and revealing. What she knew of chanter's tales and the great deeds, she had sung him, and all the words of the true speech that she had learned from the sorcerer that taught her, she taught again to Dooney. And from weather workers and wandering jugglers who went from town to town of the northward vale and the east forest, he had learned various tricks and pleasantries, spells of illusion. It was one of these light spells that he f- f- it was with one of these light spells that he first proved the great power that was in him. Okay, great. Um, uh, so why would the children of the village fear him? Uh, Brian Dimmick was asking. He says, it is, is it uh, just that they generally fear sorcerers or is he using his power in ways that would make them fear him in particular? Great question. I mean, everything that we've heard so far, Brian, suggests that the me- like there doesn't seem to be any kind of stigma attached or even special awe necessarily. That is, you know, from that first sentence, the idea of wizards, especially in Gaunt, seems like fairly normal, right? It's not to say that, like, most everybody is a wizard. I mean, it's clearly still a significant minority of the population. I mean, in his village, there's only his aunt, you know, who is a, a witch wife or a, a, a village witch who, uh, you know, knows any uh, majory at all. Um, but still, it's fairly normal, right? Um, I mean, remember the passage, I don't think we're going to look at this later on, um, but um, uh, but the, the passage where we learn that almost everybody, like all over the place, people know the spell for how to make rain go away, right? So remember the description of like a rain cloud sort of lurching all over Gaunt Island until, you know, being sent from one place to another until it finally goes out to sea? Um, so um, anyway, it's it certainly does seem like it's a it's it's a sufficiently normal part of their culture that it's not like people are like freak right so I don't think that that is the reaction. Um, so Brian, I mean, if if I'm taking the thrust of your question correctly, basically, is there something sketchy about him or sketchy about how he is applying magic? Are we supposed to see the fear of his peers as a red flag? In some way, not only about the amount of power that he has or the kind of power that he has, but how he's choosing to wield it. Right. Um, I wonder. I mean, it's it's a very kind of indirect sentence. Right. That is, it doesn't say it's a sentence that doesn't say anything about what he does uh, and only really talks about their reaction. And we're kind of left to guess why, you know, that um, uh, that reaction Um 
Yeah, good. Carrie points out that, of course, um, they're, we know they're afraid of the witch. And he goes into the witch's house, right? And, you know, he, he uh, it, they're all going to know. I mean, it's a small village. They're all going to know that he's learning from the witch. So um, whatever they're afraid of in her, presumably they're going to connect that with him as well. Um, uh, that would make him weird. I agree, Carrie. Um, that makes good sense. Um, and David says, David Erbach points out that he doesn't seem to be using his power to include other children or help them or increase their fun and safety. His magic is setting him apart from them. Yeah, I think that's a good... Um, I think that that's a good... Um, well, I don't know that I would necessarily say... Uh, Theory, theory. That, 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 that's a good theory. Again, we're not explicitly told that, but we're certainly not told anything that would lead us to believe that he is acting in that kind of a like socially constructive way with his magic at this point, right? Um, everything that we've been told is that he wants to be set aside. Remember how eager he was not to share the secrets with anybody. Right. She didn't have to bind him because there was no way he was telling anybody else because he liked to know things that other people didn't know. Um, so that impulse to distance him, not distance, separate himself from other people. Um, we saw from the beginning. I think that's an excellent point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, yeah. Well, Carrie is asking, do I think he didn't practice all her spells on the weak, young, lesser beings? See, that's what I, where I'm, I'm reluctant to go there. It's possible, right? It's possible, but we don't know that, right? I don't think we know that. I don't remember any evidence that he's actually using these spells in particular to dominate. Right. Yes. Oh, sorry. Uh, Iwin Dilligan in the Twitch chat. Um, yes, there's um, uh, there's a net moot uh, going on here. So a lot of the comments I can see yours up there as well. So if you want to put comments in the Twitch channel, um, I can see them there, too. The GoToWebinar doesn't have the delay, uh, but and you can get the link from the MythGuard.org page. Uh, and if you go to MythGuard Academy and MythGuard.org, you can get the link for this and participate there, too. Or again, just put your questions in the Twitch chat. Um, okay. Yeah. Now, Ian, you're right that the kids went from belittling him and laughing at him to fearing him, right? An important thing, I think, to remember. And so one of the things that I really admire about the way that the beginning of this story is told, um, Le Guin does a pretty remarkable job of, um, she does a pretty remarkable job of showing and not telling, right? She doesn't tell us, she doesn't tell us very many things about what was going on exactly in Dooney's life, if you see what I mean. We're told a lot about what he thinks and feels. But like, so for instance, we get glimpses of how lonely he must have been, right? How how neglected he was as a child. We talked as a, as, as a baby, as a young child, as we talked about last time with the birth of his mother, right? His mother died right after childbirth. His aunt had no use for him, right? Once he could basically feed himself, she'd let him be, right? His dad does not seem very heavily involved as far as we can tell in his life. Um, uh, nor does he really have any clear friends, right? So um, there's... Um, 
the sense of isolation, right? Um, what I think is really interesting is that I think that we can see Le Guin thinking in some really penetrating ways with some real wisdom about what these kinds of things can lead to, right? I mean, there's a lot, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of, of, of wonderful psychological realism in this story. Um, uh, and it isn't only just a, like, you know, um, Sparrowhawk isn't just like an everyman kind of character, right? Um, I mean, he has this specific set of circumstances that he's coming out of, um, and we see the effects of it, especially when he gets to Roke, but we don't... Um, she doesn't tell us that much about it, right? We don't actually know very many details. I mean, it's almost like... Um, think about what... J.K. Rowling does in Harry Potter and the Philosopher slash Sorcerer's Stone um, when she tells the beginning of Harry's story, right? So imagine if basically Harry Potter got to Hogwarts in chapter two or chapter three of, you know, the Sorcerer slash Philosopher's Stone rather than getting all of those Dursley chapters at the beginning, right? There we get a lot of detail, right? We get we, we get a lot of uh you know, long views, uh, you know, long descriptions and scenes and things of what Harry's like, life is like and and what the, you know, the basis of all those things are. She shows us all of those things in detail. Le Guin makes the really interesting choice not to do that, right? Instead, just to show the after effects. And in some ways, we almost, it almost pushes us to like backward, to reverse engineer his childhood, uh, like the real circumstances of his childhood, based on what we see happening to him uh, during his, uh, you know, his his late childhood and adolescent years. Um, it's, uh, I think, it's really, really interesting. Um, uh, and Brian, I agree, she is really good at summing up long stretches of time in just a few paragraphs and still conveying important ideas, absolutely. Um, yeah, Kate, this is an extremely skillfully written book. Uh, Le Guin is so good. I mean, I never read Ursula Le Guin, but I am just staggered by her her sheer skill. I mean, her mastery of the craft of writing. She is so good and so smart. Um and you're right, Kate. I mean, and 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 I would add how well written it is for young people. Um and you can tell it's really well written for young people because you can, you know, read it at any age and it's still just as good. Right. Um, that's that's how you can tell when something is really well written for children. Right. Um, if you come back to it when you're a grown up and you feel like you're being talked down to, then then it's not that it's not as well written, in fact. Right. Um yeah, like Leobot, I agree. Her her prose is sometimes almost like poetry. Her prose is beautiful. Um, very often, her prose is 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 really just beautiful on its own. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Anyway, uh, Christopher, sorry, you had made a comment earlier on that I wanted to come back to. Um, Christopher saying that he thinks the cultural frame around magic would make such conduct that is uh, like Dooney you know, dominating and, and uh, manipulating his peers with magic 
would make that stand out as evil, particularly in the register that the story is being told in. Yes. Um, I, 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 me too. That seems to me a big step to take. Again, we're, there's a lot that we're not told, right? There's a lot that we're left to kind of imagine for ourselves about his childhood. But I think if, if he's actually doing that, I mean, if he's actually using uh, his powers to to hurt people, to dominate people, to um, uh, to humiliate people, I mean, if he's using his power in those ways, um, that's that seems like a big deal. Um, that seems like something that within this world would be understood to be a big deal. Everybody would think that that was a big deal. Um, and so, therefore, to imagine that that is happening. She's not saying it, but that that's what she's implying is um, that seems to me a big jump, a big jump. I went Dilly, and that seems to me a little more likely that uh, that he's very likely showing off. Right. We saw how he wanted to be set apart from his peers. Right. So if he is showing off his skill and therefore like trying to be, you know, to to sort of show himself to be the most uh, the most powerful and, um, you know, wizardly of all of the, of all of the children, you know, uh, then I can imagine that they would be afraid of him. Right. Um, uh, that that could create that environment without him actually being shady. Right. In the, uh, in the application of his, uh, uh, of his, um, of his power. Um, yeah, because Bruce, I agree. Magic is clearly very common, as Bruce points out. Even wandering jugglers seem to have it, right? Absolutely, yeah. So again, I, it can't just be like, you could do magic, what? Like, that can't be the reaction the kids are having, because it's way more mainstream than that in this culture. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Brian, I think that you're absolutely right about that. Um, uh, it is true that wizards would not choose... Uh, Brian says, while it's true that wizards wouldn't choose, true, uh, yeah, wizards would not choose to use their power to dominate or abuse, from the conduct of the witch, it isn't obvious that this is true of all classes of people who employ magic exactly. Remember, in I think the last passage we looked at last time, we saw that contrast, right? That she does not like the wizard, you know, serve equilibrium. She does not, she, she, she does it without knowledge, right? Without true knowledge. Um, and not in the service of these higher things, right? Um, yes, and we know that there are shady things that she knows and does, but doesn't teach him. Um, but even that suggests that to use power in certain ways, right? Um, you know, over people, to gain power over people and to, 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 to dominate people and force people and abuse people is wrong, right? I mean, the mere fact that she doesn't, uh, and we talked about this, you know, yes, she's probably also not wanting to show it to him for fear he might do it to her, right? He doesn't want, because he fears, she fears him as a rival. Um, but still, again, like the whole sense of secrecy attached to some of those shady things that she does um, suggests that in general, people would find it shady. People would find it questionable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Okay. But yeah, again, I, I find it really interesting the way in which, as I say, we need to kind of figure out backwards what his childhood was like. Um, but certainly his talent. And again, I would emphasize the great power that was in him. Right. There is clearly 
a knack for magic, a gift for magic, which is somehow born in him. We don't really know what it is about him that gives him this ability. Um, you know, is it simply an analog to like somebody who is naturally a, a, a gifted musician or something like that? We don't really know. Um, again, I don't know how literally yet to take a phrase like the great power that was in him, right? Um, is there literally power in him? Um, or does this just mean like, you know, that power in him in the sense of he will be able to do things of great power? Again, this is like the back to that power versus craft thing, right, that we were talking about before. Anyway, okay. Um, let's... Uh, Let's keep going because we're about to get to his first deed, right? We're talking about the the deeds of of uh, of 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 Ged the Archmage, but we're not there yet. So here's here's his first deed ever. Now need called knowledge out. Dooney, seeing the fog, seeing the fog blow and thin across the path before the Cargs, right? Remember the invading folks saw a spell that might avail him. An old weather worker of the Vale seeking to win the boy as Prentice, had taught him several charms. One of these tricks was called fog-weaving, a binding spell that gathers the mists together for a while in one place. With it, one skilled in illusion can shape the mist into fair ghostly seemings, which last a little and fade away. The boy had no such skill, but his intent was different, and he had the strength to turn the spell to his own ends. Rapidly and aloud, he named the places and the boundaries of the village, and then spoke the fog-weaving charm, but in among its words he enlaced the words of a spell of concealment, and last he cried the word that set the magic going. Okay. Um, notice, uh, um, notice the... Um, uh, Notice the words. Notice the verbs, right? Um, he had the strength to turn the spell to his own ends. He named the places, spoke the fog-weaving charm, enlaced the words of a spell of concealment, and cried the word that set the magic going. Um, uh, so I, 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 I'm just sort of focusing again on what he's doing and how he's doing it. We saw the words, the rhyme, Right, that he uttered, which commanded the goats, the very first spell that he ever uttered, right? Not even knowing what it was or what it did. Well, he knew what it did a little bit, right? Um, he had a sense of what it did. It made the goat obey. Um, but, um, but he didn't really understand it, right? Um, then he was taught the, uh, the, the, the name, the words, right, that would command the hawks and falcons to come down and, uh, and, uh, and perch on his arm, right? Um, but um, here we see him doing several things at once, right? Bruce, I agree. We see the significance of naming here, right? Look at all, all of the different kind of mechanisms that are coming into place here. This is a binding, sp fog weaving, right? We, the weaving metaphor as well. Weaving, in, uh, enlacing, um, both of those very um, art words, Right, like we bought very, very, very crafting words. Um, so, like we bought when it says the boy had no such skill, it means he had no. It says with it, one skilled in illusion can shape the mist. 
um, the boy had no such skill. He did not have skill in illusion, which we'll remember, we'll see, right? When he gets to Roke, he can't do illusions at all. And, and he's like, embarrassed about it, right? Um, so he does not have the skill. He's never been taught how to make illusions with magic. Um, but his intent is different, right? His intent is not to, to do illusions. Um, so what does he do? He takes, there's a spell to bind the fog, which he learned, right? Fog weaving. Um, so you bind the fog into one place at a time, right? He names the places and boundaries of the village. So he, he does a, a like complex fog weaving charm, right? So he binds the charm, but using the names of these places, he binds it to like all of the boundaries of the village so that the entire village is completely cloaked in this fog, right? And then he combines it with another charm, right? With another spell, a spell of concealment. So that it's not only the fact that the fog obscures the village and is intimidating and, and uh, off-putting, right? Um, he, it, there's, there's this other power to the fog um, f- based on the, the spell of concealment that he also enlaces with the fog-weaving charm, right? And then he cries a word that sets the magic going. Um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, Kate, it is interesting that he has no skill in illusion, but has the creativity and power to create a new working, um, because that's what he does, right? He does, It's not only that he performs a powerful spell, right, that mostly kids his age can't do, right? That's not just what's happening here, right? He is making his own spells, right? Finding ways, seeing ways that the, the simple charms uh, and spells that the witch knows can be combined into larger things, right? With different effects. So like the weather workers who taught him how to do fog uh, weaving don't know how to do a spell like this. The witch who presumably taught him the spell of concealment doesn't, wouldn't know how to do this, right? This like, in, the instinctive thing that he does, it's, it's the enlacing, right? And then the empowerment by the word, right? And that last word I really am wondering about, the word that set the magic going. What was that word? And is that a word that he knew to... Is, is, is that a third component that he was merely combining, right? Fog-weaving charm plus spell of concealment plus word of something or other, right? Uh, word of power, word of, uh, word of something. Um, and so his improvisation is limited, I say limited, still really impressive, to figuring out a way to put all three of these things together and blend them into one single enchantment that does just what he wants it to do. Or is that word itself an innovation or an insight on his part, right? Myself, I'm a little tempted to think, we don't know, I don't think we know, um, uh, but without any information, uh, you know, without any clear information either way, I'm tempted to think the latter way. Um, That the, um, remember that there's a lot of, we will see a lot of moments later on in the story 
Um, especially I'm thinking about his, his time learning names and things at Roke. When people talk about the discovery of a name, right? When they will talk about the, you know, how you, you don't give names to things. You discover their names, right? You figure out the names of things. And uh, it kind of sounds like, um, it kind of sounds like this word that he cries at the end is a word that he discovers that he somehow like intuits um, and that that is the really remarkable thing. I mean, it's already enough, right? It's already very impressive to take these two simple charms and combine them in this complex way that neither one of his teachers could have done, right? Neither the weather worker nor the witch could have done this. Um, but that, that word that word of, of power, it's not called that, but I want to call it that because that's where the magic comes from, right? It's the impetus for the magic, we're told. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, kid, I agree. It comes from it comes from him in a sense, right? It, it, he has a great deal of strength. And as uh, kid is pointing out, he's very tired um, uh, and he holds it even when his father hits him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and remember, he's going to be really wiped out. Um, so I think that this word is something which, d- what, draws on his own strength in some way? I mean, I think that his catatonic state at the end seems to uh, um, suggest that. And David, that's a great question. David's wondering, David Erbach is wondering how he named the boundaries of the village. Um I don't think it can be just description. I mean, he he knows the names of these places. It seems to me very possible that, you know, people in Earthsea are used to naming things much more deliberately, right? That, that that's going to be something that's going to trickle down to the culture. Um, I mean, we tend to be pretty sloppy about that, right? I mean, like, exactly, David. I mean, things like... Uh, yeah, like uh, 15 feet in front of the Tanner's house and then extending 100 paces to the right and, and left and then 200 paces back. Yeah, like that's that's how we might describe it because we wouldn't make names for those boundaries, for those places, right? Um, but um, um, but I, think, I think that they would. Um, one of the things that I... Uh, w- when I used to live in Delaware, um, one of the local... Um, customs that I found really charming. Um, of course, everybody names roads, right? Uh, roads always have names uh, in America, but uh, in Delaware, intersections had names, which coming from New England, I had never seen that. Like, we don't name intersections here. We just name roads. Um, but um, uh, but whenever there was like a place where roads came together and they almost always came together in right angles because Delaware is as flat as anywhere on the Great Plains, um, uh, we Southern Delaware is uh, where I lived. Um, so there'd be like a T intersection or there'd be a, a cross intersection and it would be called like Barrett's corner, uh, the corners are, they were usually, but there's somebody's corner, right? Uh, Barrett's corner and, and, uh, uh, Pierce corner and all these other things, right? Um, uh, everything is, um, uh, it was like all, almost every intersection, almost every intersection of major roads had a name in itself. And I always thought that was, that was really charming. I always really liked that about Delaware. Um, and I suspect that that kind of cultural habit would be, it would, would be like pretty, um, pretty deep rooted in the culture of Earthsea. Um, 
because of the way of, you know, the significance of naming and magic. I mean, even knowing that, um, you know, I mean, with the names of people, right. And the, the whole culture around people's names and everything, everywhere. It's not just wizards that know that names are a big deal. Right. Um, anyway. Uh, so I, um, uh, I think that, uh, um, that's, that seems to me, um, uh, a re- yeah, good. Exactly. Sharon. Um, Sharon is also thinking of the, the, tr- the, the shift in tradition from houses all having names themselves to just the number in the street. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I, I would think that there would be, he would be able to, even if it's just casually, right. He doesn't have to like know their true names in the old speech. Right. He, he, he would even just be able to name them. I'm sure there would, they would have names. Anyway, um, yeah, exactly, Noam. You were just asking what I was just saying. I don't think they would necessarily be their true names uh, in that in the sense that he's going to learn later on. Um, but they, he's naming them only with sufficient specificity to bind the fog. Because remember, he's not commanding the places. He's commanding the fog to go to those places, right? So being able to name those places, even to give their common use names would presumably be sufficient for it. He has to know the names of the fog, right? Um, presumably the fog weaving charm is involved, you know, involves the true name of the fog, right? Um, but anyway, okay. Uh, so this is fun to see his first, um, his first magic in action. Um, and of course it works uh, excellently and everything, but now look what happens to him. No weapon hurt had come to the boy, but he would not speak, nor eat, nor sleep. He seemed not to hear what was said to him, not to see those who came to see him. There was none in those parts wizard enough to cure what ailed him. His aunt said, he has overspent his power, but she had no art to help him. Now, I don't know how authoritative his aunt the witch is, right? I mean, she obviously knows something of this, um, but... You know, it's equally obvious we've been explicitly told that her knowledge is quite limited as well. So um, it's not like I think we can accept her word as the absolute truth of what's happening here. Um, But at the very least, it's evidence of her view, right? Her presumption about it, Um, which might be true. But again, even if it's not, it's interesting. Um, And that is it's she makes it sound like he has he himself has a kind of well of power, right? Um, That you do put some of your own power, your own, what, energy? We've not even used that word in this book. I can't use that word. Um, Power is all that we got, right? So that there's power in him, um, and he has used that power too much. Of that power. He's overspent his power. So spending your power is normal, I guess, right? So some of the power of spells comes from you. And that fits with what we saw before, phrases like when she saw the power that was in him, right? Um, So therefore, is that the reason the goat charm that he spoke first, his first spell, worked so well right? Remarkably well. She was shocked to see it was that it's what part in part, right? It's partly the craft, partly the art 
of uttering the words, right? Knowing the rhyme that will command the goats, that will bind the goats to you. Um, part of it is just is 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 the craft of simply knowing the right words to say. And even if you have no idea what you're doing, if you say them, that but remember, not just anybody would do that. She was impressed at the fact that he, not even knowing what he was saying, was able to do that kind of thing, right? And so, therefore, it seems that the power in him, um, I get that it's kind of a both things are involved, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that this certainly seems to back up that idea. Um, yeah, Nancy's thinking that she's definitely seen this before, maybe even experienced it. She's not wizard enough to cure him, um, but uh, but she does seem to uh, uh, to know what's going on. Um, Yes, Nancy, it does seem that a person's power can grow. I, I certainly agree with that. Okay. While he lay thus dark and dumb, the story of the lad who wove the fog and scared off the Kargish swordsman with a mess of shadows was told all down the northward vale and in the east forest and high on the mountain and over the mountain, even to the great port of Gaunt. So it happened that on the fifth day after the slaughter at Armouth, a stranger came into Ten Alders' village, a man neither young nor old, who came cloaked and bareheaded, lightly carrying a great staff of oak that was as tall as himself. He did not come up the course of the Ar like most people, but down, out of the forests of the higher mountainside. The village goodwives saw well that he was a wizard, and when they told them, and when he told them that he was a heel-all, they brought him straight to the smith's house, sending away all but the boy's father and aunt. The stranger stooped above the cot where Dooney lay staring into the dark, and did no more than lay his hand on the boy's forehead and touch his lips once. Okay. Um, here again, I'm tempted to lay a particular emphasis on the, on the choice of words there in that last sentence in the first paragraph there. But she had no art to help him. Yes, her art will not help him. Why? Because she has insufficient power, right? Um, it is, does not seem to be art on his part, um, on the part of this as yet unnamed wizard, right? Um, it doesn't seem to be art that has healed the boy, right? All He doesn't, he says no words, James. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, all we see is him laying his hand on the boy's forehead and touching his lips, right? Um, power seems to be at work, but that seems as artless a gesture, right? I'm not saying the gesture is insignificant, um, but thinking of the word art as we have been discussing it, that is craft, right? Finding rhymes that you can utter that will make things happen, right? You know, uh, uh, making potions, things like that, right? The, 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 the application of, um, you know, human ingenuity in order to make magic happen, in order to bring about magical results, right? That's what the witch does. That's what she knows. That's what she's taught him. Um, the power he had, Dooney had, right? And now this dude seems to have, this seems to be something like a mere, um, 
application of power, as far as I can see. Um, the village goodwives saw well that he was a wizard. Because of his staff, most likely, is what we will, I think, come to see later on. Um, but uh, yes, Devora, you are certainly right. We will want to remember this healing scene for later on, right? There will be there will be several times when we're going to want to come back and uh, do some comparison and contrast here. Okay. Okay. Before I read this next slide, um, let's have a poll. I want to I want to poll the audience here. Ready? There we go. Those of you on Twitch, I think, can see it, though you can't participate yet. How do you pronounce the name of this wizard? Because I've heard it pronounced a bunch of different ways. And, um, by the way, those of you who are listening... Um, those of you who are listening to the audiobook of this, or at least one of the audio recordings of this, might um, be having the same freaky experience that I am, uh, because at least one version of the unabridged audio of A Wizard of Earthsea is read by Rob Inglis, um, the guy who read the Lord of the Rings books. And... I've never heard, I've never listened to this recording before, and indeed, this is the first non-Hobbit Lord of the Rings book I've ever heard narrated by Robert Inglis, and so I have associated his voice exclusively and strongly with the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit for many years of my life now, and um, I am a uh, it's freaking me out. <laughs> but anyway, um, um, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Uh, all right. Results of our poll. Okay, so I gave three options, uh, one with a soft G and two with the hard G. Um, I can't, so, and the question with, so, so the two questions essentially, is the, is the G soft or hard? Do you pronounce the G soft or hard? And do you stress the first syllable or the second syllable? Um, and I can't see, I only gave three options because uh, Ogeon, I, I can't see at all. Like, if you're going to pronounce it with a soft G, I feel like you almost have to pronounce, stress the second syllable, right? Um, which is indeed how Rob Inglis does it in the audiobook. He calls him O'Giant. Um, and I'm like, okay. Um, or you could do with a hard G, O'Gion. Or you could do with a hard G and stressing the first syllable, O'Gion. Um, and uh, the majority of you, um, uh, uh, yeah, Nancy, he pronounces it the first way, the way that the the least percentage of you uh, uh, pronounce it. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, okay. So 
Um, yeah, Bruce, exactly. Listening to this would be like listening to Jim Dale read anything other than Harry Potter. Um, yeah, it would be like that. So I'm going to go with the majority here, which I'm glad of, actually, because I was hoping for an... I, I, my sense is that that's how it's pronounced, Ogion. Um, and I particularly like that because, of course, there are a couple reasons why. Um, one, it's just kind of more fun. And two, because um, it almost rhymes with Obi-Wan then, which I kind of like. <laughs> I, I think that's uh, kind of fun. Um, okay. All right. So uh, so there we go. Okay. So uh, you guys are supporting what my own impulse was. Uh, um, and I, I, his, um, his, what seems fairly clear, I think, is that the true name of Dooney uh, is Ged, right, with a hard G again. I think we've got hard Gs pretty much all around there. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, okay. So I, 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 my understanding of people who are who, people who are uh, who know Le Guin and Earthsea way better than I do can correct me. Um, I thought that Ogion was the was the kind of mainstream pronunciation of that, and I am positive that Ged is the mainstream pronunciation of that. Um, um, okay, good. Yeah, I, Le Guin does indicate a hard G for Ged. I was pretty sure that that was the case. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. So, thank you. I will, I will pronounce it Ogion. Uh, thank you for, for, I just, I was, I was, I was going to just talk about it and I'm like, no, wait, I've got an idea. I'll, I'll make a poll. Uh, there we go. Okay. The witch whispered to the smith, brother, this must surely be the mage of Ray Albi, Ogion the silent, that one who tamed the earthquake. Sir, said the bronze smith, who would not let a great name daunt him. My son will be thirteen this month coming, but we thought to hold his passage at the Feast of Sun Return this winter. Let him be named as soon as may be, said the mage, for he needs a name. I have other business now, but I will come back here for the day you choose. If you see fit, I will take him with me when I go thereafter, and if he prove apt, I will keep him as prentice, or see to it that he is schooled as fits his gifts. For to keep dark the mind of the mage-born, that is a serious thing. Very gently Ogion spoke, but with certainty, and even the hard-headed smith assented to all he said. Okay. Um, good. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Tomas says, uh, is, is one of Le Guin's tricks to produce words that are open to different pronunciations? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That's, um, that's sort of, uh, it's sort of a tricky one. I didn't see a pronunciation guide. Um, so it, she doesn't, my suspicion, Tomas, is just that she, like, you know, Tolkien includes pronunciation guides and stuff because he, um, uh, because he's, you know, I mean, 
student. He's Tolkien, right? I mean, he's a philologist. He, he's interested in the language, and he wants you to think about the language, too. And so he has opinions, right, about how the things... This is not up to you how to pronounce it. There's a right and a wrong way, right? Uh, because if you pronounce it the wrong way, you're doing violence to the whole structure of the language from which that name is derived, right? So that's not okay. Um um, some fantasy authors, I feel, I, you know, some other fantasy authors who uh, um, include pronunciation guides sometimes give me the impression that um, they're including a pronunciation guide just because their own idiosyncratic pronunciation of that particular name is so unlikely that you mightn't guess it left to yourself. And so they've given you a pronunciation guide. Uh, Tolkien does not work that way. Um, but um, anyway. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, James, that's a really good question. James Stevens asked, does the title The Silent, right? Ogion The Silent. Does it imply that he doesn't say words to do magic? I mean, we will come to see that it means, one of the things at least, that it means is that he doesn't talk that much, right? <laughs> um, but... I mean, James, you're right that it correlates with the fact that the first magic we see him doing is, in fact, also silent, right? Is also wordless. Um, so that's uh, so that's interesting. Um, and Zach, absolutely, I agree. Uh, his use of the phrase "the mage born" certainly does suggest that there is some kind of you know, genetic component here. That that is that it's that it's it is something you're just born with or not born with. Um, um, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely, um, exactly, David. I I, I do think uh, uh, Fourth Dauntless that uh, Ogion the Taciturn could certainly be a kind of a synonym, right, for uh, uh, for Ogion the Silent in practice, right? Certainly on a day-to-day basis. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Okay. That's a rather long speech for Ogie on the silent, in fact. Um, uh, almost as long a speech as we'll see him do. Note that he is urgent here about the, what came right before this passage is his recommendation that Dooney, the child, be given his name. You know, that he have his naming um, as soon as possible, right? Um, And he seems to think it important, like it's important for his health or for his development, that he get his name as soon as possible. Um, It it was not 100% clear to me why Ogion... I mean, Ogion isn't just like, when are you going to name him? Because, you know, I got places to be, right? So I was hoping to be here for the naming, but, you know... um, uh, if we could push it up to this coming fortnight, I'd be grateful. That did not sound like what Ogion was saying before. It sounded like um, there was like um, reasons for Dooney's benefit, like for for his sake, that uh, naming sooner um, would be. Uh, yes, he needs his name, Devora. That's exactly what he says. Um, uh, almost as if his own weakness is it. So theory, theory, Devora. Um, is Ogion suggesting, or rather, can we conclude, or speculate perhaps, uh, from that statement by Ogion and from the context of it, right, in the healing under these circumstances, is the kind of application of power 
that um, Duni undertook in this, you know, which overspent his power, right? Um, is that dangerous to do without a name yourself? Do you need, like, the grounding of a name? It's, I mean, like, you can do charms and things and, and, and little bindings and stuff like that, like weather workers do and, like, village witches do. Um, you know, name or no name, right, even as a child. But, like, before you... Because before he's given his name, right, it's... um. It's, it's, I mean, is he in a weak position, right? I mean, again, that, that phrase is, as you say, Devorah, a very strong sentence, right? He needs his name. Um, as if, and I hear that as him implying it's part of the, it's part of the problem, right? That's part of what went wrong here. Um, it's not that he tried to do too much. It's that he didn't have his name. Um, um, so... Yeah, Kate says, uh, uh, is it his lack of name that kept him caught in his spell? Perhaps, uh, perhaps sort of uh, a, a like um, um, an inability to like be kind of grounded in himself in some way. So he almost lost himself. Uh, I'm not really uh, I'm not really sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Noam says, do you know yourself without knowing your name? Right, Noam, exactly. And then the logical, then the logical next step of that would be to say, and can you exert power like this without knowing yourself? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that seems to me, that seems to me to fit. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, who are you alone yourself and nameless? Uh, exactly. Different, different context here, right? That, uh, you know, yeah, boy, uh, Goldberry's answer to Frodo's question about Tom Bombadil, uh, would have a completely different context in Earthsea, wouldn't it? Um, let's not go there. <laughs> Always not go there. Let's not spend any longer there. Let me just say, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I agree with you, Fourth Dauntless, uh, who says, uh, if a lack of a name was the source of Dooney's problem, it seems unlikely that Ogion could have solved his catatonia without knowing that name. I hear you. Um, I hear you there. Uh, but um, what I'm wondering, we have so little to go on about what he did, right? Um I am tempted. So we, there are two things that he did. He put his hand on Dooney's brow and then he touched his lips. And I am tempted to read that as a diagnostic and then a healing gesture, right? The hand on the brow as the sort of, I mean, in part, of course, because that's like a traditional diagnostic gesture. Um, uh, you know, so is she sort of building on this? So does he first, I, oh yeah, okay, I see the problem, and then he heals it by touching his lips? Um, as if, what, he's like speaking for him, or speaking into him, or, or you know, putting power into him uh, in that way, through his mouth, right, through his lips? Um, yeah, yeah, good. Both Devora and Kate are both pointing out that um, uh, Ogion, of course, is going to be the one to give Dooney his true name. Um, uh, so Kate says, did he in fact learn it? Like when he put his hand on, on Dooney's brow 
does he perceive his true name? Um, but is like, look, we need to, <laughs> we need to formalize this, right? He needs to have his own name in order to keep this kind of thing from happening again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Noam says we'll have a good answer to that in a few books. Okay. All right. Well, I don't like it when we get answers in a few books, but that's okay. That's okay. We'll do the best we can with what we have here. Okay. Let's keep going. On the day, <clears throat> oops, voice issues. <clears throat> okay. On the day the boy was 13 years old, a day in the early splendor of autumn, while still the bright leaves are on the trees, Ogion returned to the village from his rovings over Gaunt Mountain, and the ceremony of passage was held. The witch took from the boy his name Duni, the name his mother had given him as a baby. Nameless and naked, he walked into the cold springs of the Ar, where it rises among rocks under the high cliffs. As he entered the water clouds, crossed the... As he entered the water... Let me, let me come again. As he entered, the water clouds crossed the sun's face, and great shadows slid and mingled over the water of the pool about him. He crossed to the far bank, shuddering with cold, but walking slow and erect, as he should, through that icy living water. As he came to the bank, Ogion, waiting, reached out his hand, and clasping the boy's arm, whispered to him his true name, Ged. Thus was he given his name by one very wise in the uses of power. Okay. Yeah, Kate, this is very rebirthy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Sharon, I don't know how you take someone's name. Um, uh, I don't know how literally to take that, right? Um, on the one hand, you know, so the witch took from the boy his name Duni. Um, I'm, you know, the immediate my immediate temptation, right, is to uh, uh, is to think of that as ceremonial, purely ceremonial, right? Um, but. But it doesn't really sound like that. Nameless and naked, he walked into the cold springs of the R, right? Um, I think that sounds much more, it sounds much more real, right? Um, yeah, Rachel, it does sound like his previous name must be taken back before he can receive his true name. Um, yeah, yeah, um... Yeah. Yeah, no, this is very rite of passage like. It's very much like a rebirth. Um absolutely. Um Yeah, and no, we we know we were told, I think even at the beginning, that Dooney was was not his true name, right? That was the name that his mother gave him at birth. It's like a placeholder. It's his childhood name. And it's his it's the witch who takes the name back, right? The witch who had been grudgingly, negligently, right, in the place of his mom uh, from after his birth, after the death of his mother, and before, you know, she's the one who cared for him as a baby. Um, so I think it's in kind of loco parentis um, uh, that uh, she is, that she is taking his name away here. 
Um, and the fact that, again, the fact that it's the witch who's doing it, I, I, I think that this is, uh, this is something, this is a transaction, this is not just a ceremony, this is not just an outward show in order to solemnize an occasion, right? I think that something is happening here. Um, just as something is happening to him when his true name is whispered to him by Ogeon. And, uh, and I absolutely agree with you, Nancy. It's very interesting that Ogeon is described as being very wise in the uses of power. Wise in the uses of power. We get a whole paragraph on that, right? Thus was he given his name by one very wise in the uses of power. That seems significant, right? Um, not just that it was Ogion who gave him his name, but that Ged's true identity, his core identity, is given to him by one wise in the uses of power. Um, as we will see, being wise in the uses of power is not going to be Ged's thing at the beginning, right? This is not going to be the hallmark of his early career. Um, and yet, it's connected to him. It's like, almost like a heritage that is put upon him or held out to him um, by Ogion at his naming, which seems, uh, which seems important. Um... Yeah. Um, yeah. Devora tends to think that his mother would have taken his name if she'd lived. I, I, I agree. It's almost like the birth name, the name that he has as a child is like lent to him until, you know, to use until he gets his true name and then it's then it's taken back. It, it, it has that feel to me, too. I don't think the fact that she's a witch is what's most important. Um, I think it's that, again, she is in the position of his mother that uh, is most important. Um, yeah. Um, James is asking, is naming him a use of, of power, or does Ogeon just discover his name and tell him? My suspicion very strongly is the latter. Um, uh, very strongly. And absolutely, uh, David Attlee, it does sound like a... a it, it's... It, it's a secret. It's clearly a secret, right? We've not been told much about this yet. I don't believe in the book, but um, um, but the fact that he 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 whispers to him his true name, right? Nobody else hears it. Nobody. There's nobody in the world who knows the boy's true name other than Ogion and he himself. Um, yeah. Um, Exactly, Christopher. It begs the question of whether the name exists independent of the gift, uh, or is it something that Ogion has a part in creating? Exactly. Um, my suspicion, Christopher, and this, you know, I, I can't be certain of this, but based based on what we've seen, um, I would theorize that Ogion has a significant part in his naming, but it's not an act of creation. It's an act of discovery. Now, if Ogion hadn't wandered out of the woods in order to do this, it's obvious that that's not normal, right? I mean, 
Many other boys have gotten their true names in this village, presumably in the last ten years, and, you know, the Wizard of Realbi has not wandered down off the mountaintop in order to give it to them, right? Because they've never seen this dude before. Um, so that's not normal, which means somebody else must normally give it to him. Um, uh, do you um, do you get the sense that it, if Ogion hadn't come in and done this, it might have been his dad, or maybe his aunt, but perhaps even his father, um, given the way that his father was the one that Ogion was like discussing the naming ceremony with, and it was the father who seemed to have made plans for the naming. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, one of them, presumably, either the aunt or the father, would have given him his true name had it not been Ogion, Right. So what does that mean? My suspicion is that what that means is that they might not have gotten it right. Right? Maybe I, I, maybe they would have called him Jed instead, and that would have been just wrong. Right? Um, no, I mean, I'm kind of joking. I'm, 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 I'm like 50% joking there. Right? That is to say, what I mean is, would they have... Is the naming, the, the art of naming... Right, that is giving a true name to a to a child. Right at this at this transitional moment, is that an act of discovery? But only like the wise, are, like that that the wise are better at discovering that. Right, um, so that the one very wise in the uses of power gave him his name, and that means like his name is good. Right, his name is more powerful. Um, he, he, his, like, Ogion nails his name, right? Uh, because he's Ogion, right? Uh, whereas, like, his dad might have screwed it up or not have, you know, come as close to what his true name was. Um, that's my, uh, um, that's my sort of suspicion there. Um, yeah. Brian, I do suspect that having the like your true, real, true name discovered is especially important for wizards. By the way, the primary thing that leads me to that theory here in reading this passage is that we don't ever, I mean, have we ever seen anyone apart from his mom at his birth, like with that birth name, have we ever seen anyone giving an, it's always about discovering the true names of things, right? Things have names. You, you have to find out what they are. You don't just, like, the power of naming is not about assigning names. It's about discovering names. And so I would have to think that the same would be true of people. Um, exactly, James Stevens. That's a good way of saying it. Um, that Ogion gave him his true name, whereas, like, his father might have just given him a name. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, cool. Okay. Um, okay, let's keep going. Ged had thought that as the apprentice of a great mage, he would enter at once into the mystery and mastery of power. He would understand the language of the beasts and the speech of the leaves of the forest, he thought, and sway the winds with his word and learn to change himself into any shape he wished. 
Maybe he and his master would run together as stags, or fly to Ray Alby over the mountain on the, winds of e on the wings of eagles. But it was not so at all. They wandered, first down into the vale, and then gradually south and westward around the mountain, given lodging in little villages, or spending the night out in the wilderness, like poor journeymen sorcerers, or tinkers, or beggars. They entered no mysterious domain. Nothing happened. The mage's oaken staff that Ged had watched at first with eager dread was nothing but a stout staff to walk with. Three days went by, and four days went by, and still Ogion had not spoken a single charm in Ged's hearing, and had, and had not taught him a single name or rune or spell. Yeah, Christopher, I agree. There is a lot of delicious alliteration and almost rhymes at the beginning uh, of this passage. Ged had thought that as the apprentice of a great mage, he would enter at once into the mystery and mastery of power. Yes, the mystery and mastery is good. Um, the language of the beasts and the speech of the leaves of the forest. He would sway the words, the sway the winds with his word and learned to change himself into any shape he wished. Yes, sway, winds, word, and wished flow uh, beautifully there. Okay. Um, yeah, oh, you're right, David. The, the phrase eager dread is a wonderful phrase, isn't it? Um, the mage's oaken staff that Ged had watched at first with eager dread was nothing but a stout staff to walk with. Again, with the alliteration on stout staff. Um, yeah, so... Um, first of all, again, she, is, she has such a gentle touch. Do you see the, f the, the sentence in which she invites us, I won't say quite to laugh at Ged, but almost, right? If not for this one sentence, we might, uh, we might find Ged's impatience totally reasonable. The sentence that um, uh, that gets me. Now you're right, uh, uh, Devora and David. I also really like the sentence. Nothing happened, right? Um, yeah, that's a good one. To me, the, the thing which kind of gives away the game. Three days went by, and four days went by, and still Ogion had not spoken a single charm. Um, Three days. I mean, it was like an eternity, right? I mean, he had been with this guy for a long time, right? I mean, he and Ogion had known each other forever now, right? He'd been apprentice for like three whole days and learned nothing. Can you even believe that, right? Um, it's like, ah, uh, 13-year-olds, <laughs> right? I mean, you get a glimpse of like how young he is there, 
right? Like what the, I mean, gosh, it's been like three days, right? Um, it's, uh, it's fun, right? But so understated, so gentle, so gentle. It's like what, and you know, his ex, the first time I was, I mean, again, when I was rereading this, uh, when I was listening to this for the first time, just, you know, in this past week, um, you know, these past two weeks, which, as I told you before, I'm like, this book is striking me as if I've never read it before. It's wonderful. Um, I feel like I'm re-experiencing this book, which is so much fun. But anyway, um, uh, so when I when I when I heard this passage, I the first paragraph and like this first half of the second paragraph totally gave me the impression that we were getting the synopsis of like the first six months of his apprenticeship, right? And then it turns out to have been only three days, and he's already like, oh, this is so lame. Uh, yeah, it's really uh, it's really wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Are we there yet? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and as Kate points out, it's the fourth day that breaks his back, right? Uh, three days might be a ceremonial waiting period, but four days is unreasonable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um yeah, yeah. Uh no, I mean again, you know, my, my, my kids are eleven and sixteen, so I'm 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 right in this I'm right in this time. I totally get this. Um uh the other um the other thing which again is very suggestive, but again she's so subtle. Um They wandered first down into the vale, and then gradually south and westward around the mountain given lodging in little villages or spending the night out in the wilderness like poor journeyman sorcerers or tinkers or beggars. You see that? See what we're being told there? Notice all that is being suggested to us of Ged's point of view, right? Of Ged's assumptions, of his ambitions, right? Of his... Um, uh, yeah, good. I love that. David Erbach says it's almost like all the three days, um, you know, he downgrades <laughs> what he thinks they're like. Right. Man, we're kind of living the life of journeyman sorcerers here. Actually, we're kind of like tinkers in day three, man. Yeah, it's like we're beggars or something. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and and you absolutely can see his see his pride. Devorah, yeah, he thinks they should have more. He He's a big deal, right? I mean, look at that first sentence. As the prentice of a great mage, he would enter at once into the mystery and mastery of power, right? And it does. I get Notice how she doesn't say this anywhere, but when you bring that then down into the second paragraph, it seems fairly clear. It's not only that he expected that he would be given access to more power, he also thought that he would be accorded the respect that one who is privy to the mystery and mastery of power deserves, right? Um, uh, when he enters one of these little villages, he expects to be received as the prentice of a great mage. And instead, they end up spending the night out in the wilderness like beggars. They even let it rain on them, for crying out loud, right? Um, that is... Uh, that is really, really tough. And again, we think back to um, uh, we think back to 
his childhood, right? His first 13 years, of which we're told comparatively little. Um, he is somebody now, right? What was he before? Who was he before? All he was before was Dooney, the child who still bore the name given to him by his dead mother, right? Um, who's go- so by his mother who was gone. I mean, there was nobody like the person who gave him that name couldn't even take it, wasn't even around to take it back, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian, we're told even less about what Ogeon is thinking, but I am putting a big chunk of my money down on the fact that Ogeon knows full well the impatience that is brewing in his new prentice, and he is uh, doing all of this on purpose, right? Uh, that that progression from journeyman sorcerers to tinkers to beggars is well known uh, to Ogion. Um, that seems pretty pretty clear. Um, Forfoil, they call it. He's talking about this plant. Ogion had halted the copper-shod foot of his staff near the little weed, so Ged looked closely at the plant and plucked a dry seed pod from it, and finally asked, since Ogion said nothing more, what is its use, master? I Notice how, like, Ged has to take it on himself to, like, prompt him to give any freaking lessons, right? Like, you're supposed to be... I mean, sure, at the least, you could tell me what the use of this herb is. Right? You'll know I mean, his aunt would have done, right? That's the kind of thing that his aunt did teach him, in fact, right? None I know of. Ged kept the seed pot a while as they went on, then tossed it away. I like it. We're told nothing about what's going on in his head, and yet can't you see it, right? He's looking at the seed pot, he's thinking about the seed pot, he's wondering, like, Am I supposed to figure out the uses of this thing, right? Is there's is is this a riddle, right? Is it am you know is this a test, you know? And then he's like, yeah, screw it, whatever. Like it's no, this is just a waste of time, right? In fact, this was another non-lesson, right? Yet another day of being taught nothing by Ogion. Get right, okay. I said that. When you know the forefoil in all its seasons, root and leaf and flower, by sight and scent and seed. Then you may learn its true name, knowing its being, which is more than its use. What, after all, is the use of you, or of myself? Is Gaunt Mountain useful, or the open sea? Ogion went on half a mile or so, and said at last, To hear, one must be silent. Okay. Um, Finally, a lesson, right? Notice again, uh, so gently it is done. What we see here, in part, is the very different framework that he's coming from, right? One of the effects of his teaching by his aunt, and we were already told in that paragraph we looked at the end of last session, um, one of the things that differentiates mere village witches from wizards 
is that they don't know the they are to quote out of context a sentence from a totally different author um which is a terribly practical um sorry, from the magician's nephew um I think I quoted that last week too cuz it it's definitely relevant he's he's used to thinking the way that his aunt has taught him to think right all of her um all of the witch's magic was practical, was designed to do things, to do things that she wanted done that were advantageous to her to use, right? Um, and um, he uh, um, he's suggesting real magic starts somewhere very differently. If the first question you're asking when you're looking at an herb is, what is its use? What can we use it for? How can I utilize that thing as a means to an end of my own? If that's the question you're asking, you are asking the wrong question. Um, you have to know the forefoil and all its seasons, root and leaf and flower, by sight and scent and seed, and then you may know you may learn its true name, knowing its being. By understanding a thing and knowing a thing, then you can gain power, right? Then you can gain knowledge, wisdom. That's real magic, right? That's a wizard's magic. Um, to hear, one must be silent. I'm not telling you things for a reason, kid. Um, and yes, I am absolutely convinced, uh, Devorah and Nancy, as several of you are saying, um, it probably, this probably just made Ged get more frustrated. Absolutely. I agree. Um, uh, by the way, I, I mentioned before that I feel awkward about knowing what to call him. The narrative refers to him as Ged consistently. Right, we know his name is Sparrowhawk, and of course we see other people calling him Sparrowhawk because only Ogion and he know his name. But the narrator is constantly referring to him by his, by his real name, right? By his name of Ged. But I feel awkward calling him Ged because, like, seems a little personal, right? You know, I've not been let into the secret of his true name, or I guess we have, right? Um, perhaps, or in a sense. Um, I, uh, uh, I am feeling like just in, in applying Ogion's lesson here, like I don't, I don't understand him well enough yet to use his name. Right. I, I don't feel like I should call him Ged because I don't know. I don't yet know the forefoil and all its seasons, root and leaf and flower. Right. I, I'm trying to do that as we're going through the text. I'm trying to learn that about him. Um, uh, to know him by sight and scent and seed, but I don't know him that well yet. Uh, so it feels totally presumptuous and inappropriate for me to refer to him as Ged. Uh, but there we go. Um, but I agree, Noam. I mean, we get the deeds of Ged at the very beginning, right? I mean, the the stories identify him by his true name. So, so yeah, I agree. It's out there. And again, the narrator uses it consistently all the way through. Um uh, and this does, this does bring us back to, uh, this does bring us back to 
the retrospective point of view of this uh, uh, of this book, right? As we as we talked about before. Um, Yes, good. David Attlee and James Stevens are both remembering, of course, only in silence the word. Um, the first line of the, our poem that we spent so long discussing last week. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that does seem to be something along the lines of the lesson that Ogeon is uh, trying to teach. Um yeah. Nope, Ogeon did not write those lines. Uh, it's an interesting theory in this context, but no, he just learned those lessons. Uh, we will get a reference to the authorship later on. Okay. Still no marvels and enchantments occurred. <laughs> Another day. Still no marvels. All winter there was nothing but the heavy pages of the rune book turning, and the rain and the snow falling, and Ogeon would come in from roaming the icy forests or from looking after his goats, and stamp the snow off his boots, and sit down in silence by the fire. And the mage's long listening silence would fill the room and fill Ged's mind, until sometimes it seemed he had forgotten what words sounded like. And when Ogeon spoke at last, it was as if he had, just then, and for the first time, invented speech. Yet the words he spoke were no great matters, but had, on had to do only with simple things. Bread and water and weather and sleep. You know, boring stuff. Again, there's so much that we can see, so much that we can learn. Uh, from this paragraph. So much we can learn about Ged, right? So much we can learn about Sparrowhawk. Um, still no marvels. Um, but I love the thing about the silence. Only in silence the word, right? Again, or still, or more, we can see that being enacted here, right? Um, ironically, the, um, um, the word, the, the, the lesson... Uh, about silence is ironically falling on uh, uh, on deaf ears. <laughs> Bruce Bruce says, "Still no marvels." What? Still? What was this like day six or something already? Man, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And there's so much we can learn about magic, Noam. I absolutely agree. Notice how again we can see if we try to pay attention to Ogion's teachings, we can follow what he is trying to teach him. Right? Note the effect of words. Get himself is aware of the effect of the words. Right? The effect that the silence is having on him. Um, that the the way in which his attention is being drawn to words, and if only he were listening more carefully, rather than. Wanting the pyrotechnics, right? Wanting marvels. Uh, instead, the fact that the words having to do with simple things, bread and water and weather and sleep, um, the way in which the significance of the words for those things is being transformed in his ears and in his experience is a powerful, powerful lesson that Ogion is trying to teach him. Right. But he is absolutely impervious to this because of his impatience, because he has an idea of what learning magic should look like and he's not getting it. 
but also I think more importantly, that perspe- that shift in perspective. Magic isn't about making use of things. Magic is about studying things. It's about hearing. It's about listening, right? It's not about speaking. It's not about commanding. It's about speaking. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and he, he, he can't hear it. He won't hear it. He is totally oblivious to this. But again, the important thing I want to track is why. Okay. Then he meets this girl. He looked down at the white flowers that brushed against her white skirt, and at first he was shy and glum and hardly answered. But she went on talking, in an open, careless, willful way that little by little set him at ease. All right, let me pause a second, refer to a, a, the passage right before this. Um, do you remember the significance of these white flowers? Um, the glade where these rare white flowers grow is where he meets this girl repeatedly, right? What's significant? What are we? Do you remember what we're told is significant about these white flowers? Yes, Devora, they're used for something. Exactly. I don't even think we're told exactly what they're used for. Um, they're used in healing, James, but they're rare and valuable and useful, right? Um, he knows the use for them. He knows that they are in demand because of their great usefulness, and so he's happy to have found them. So it's really interesting that we see him, we can see like the the very context of his encounter with this girl is in the context of uh, uh, showing us, right, of demonstrating that that shift in perspective that Ogeon was trying to bring him to totally passing over his head, right? He's absolutely not changed his perspective there. Anyway, okay. He looked down at the white flowers that brushed against her white skirt, and at first he was shy and glum and hardly answered. But she went on talking, in an open, careless, willful way, that little by little set him at ease. She was a tall girl of about his own age, very sallow, almost white-skinned. Her mother, they said in the village, was from Oskil, or some such foreign land. Her hair fell long and straight, like a fall of black water. Ged thought her very ugly, but he had a desire to please her, to win her admiration, that grew on him as they talked. She made him tell all the story of his tricks with the mist that had defeated the Kargish warriors, and she listened as if she wondered and admired, but she spoke no praise. And soon she was off on another tack. "'Can you call the birds and beasts to you?' she asked. "'I can,' said Ged. He knew there was a falcon's nest in the cliffs above the meadow, and he summoned the bird by its name. It came, but it would not light on his wrist, being put off, no doubt, by the girl's presence." It screamed and struck the air with broad, barred wings, and rose up on the wind. What do you call that kind of charm that made the falcon come? A spell of summoning. Can you call the spirits of the dead to come to you, too? He thought she was mocking him with this question, because the falcon had not fully obeyed his summons. He would not let her mock him. I might if I chose, he said in a calm voice. Okay. Karita says, this kid is remarkably easy to get the goat of. It is, it is his defining trait so far. Yes, 
Um, yes. Um, he can't get away from goats, but you can get his goat from him pretty quickly. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes. Um, What else do you notice? Bruce, I agree. It is interesting and kind of rare, right, that the protagonists uh, are people of color and the bad guys, the girls and the early invaders are white. Yes, that is unusual. I agree. Um, what can we put together about him? and about his perspective from this. To me, one of the most interesting things about this encounter, about his reaction to her, is that he thinks she's ugly. Ged thought her very ugly, but he had a desire to please her, to win her admiration, that grew on him as they talked. Why? Why? Yes, Nancy, the fact that his desire to have her admire him is independent of what he thinks of her does seem important. Right? That seems to tell us something really important about him. If he thought she were cute, right? If he's getting, like, at least a tiny little bit Twitter-pated here upon meeting this girl, there's something selfless in that compared to this, right? There is nothing in her. There is nothing that is rising up spontaneously in him in response to her, it would seem, that makes him want to please her, right? Um, it's not—it doesn't have that dimension, at all, we're told. He he thinks she's very ugly. Um, the desire to please her is quite different. Now, I agree, Noam. He's 13 and she's a girl. And that's kind of enough. I, you know, like, I, I can... Uh, I, I, yeah, I hear that. <laughs> I hear that. Um, uh Takanko, I don't know, and James is asking the same thing, is she casting some kind of spell on him? Is there some kind of influence on her part? That's a great question, and I don't know. Um, what Ogion is going to tell us later suggests to me that that's very possible. Um, but I don't want to let get off that easily. Gosh, here now I'm, uh, uh, now I'm thinking... Uh, about the magician's nephew again, right? Um, and, um, you know, I'm thinking of Diggory trying to excuse himself for ringing the bell by saying he was a bit enchanted at the time, right? Um, and Aslan kind of having no uh, uh, no truck with that excuse, right? I'm kind of thinking a, a similar thing about Ged here. Is Ged being influenced by her in some way? I, I, I can't rule that out. I think that that is possible based on what we learn. But it doesn't seem to me to be sufficient explanation for what uh, for what we see here, right? 
Um, <laughs> Ronald says, at 13, all girls cast a spell on me. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. I remember being 13, too. Um, um, yeah. Carrie points out that if there were enchantment involved, he should have laughed. Right. Uh, perhaps. Perhaps so. Um, but yes, Flamifer, I agree. Um, seeking prestige and admiration has been a theme of his. Right. We saw that even when he was younger, even as a kid, like when he's like eight, uh, he's wanting that he's wanting to be distinguished among his peers. Um, uh, and so I think we're seeing that here, too. Um, notice the. Um, uh, uh, notice the. Um, the business with the hawk and Arthur, of course, uh, is very right to point out that uh, the action of the hawk should perhaps have been a warning to him I mean, of the falcon, um, uh, you know, especially given its proximity to his own use name. Right. Um, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. He should have taken warning at that, but he doesn't. Instead, how does he take it? Instead of seeing... Like, he knows that this spell of summoning works. And he calls the falcon down to itself, but it won't come. And, you know, we even get put off no doubt by the girl's presence. Right? But his response to this is not, Golly, why didn't that spell that's always worked before work this time? Instead of even asking himself that question, he is instead merely saying, oh, man, I look like an idiot, right? She's going to think that my summoning spells don't work. Devora says, maybe this is why Ogion wanted to teach him silence, right? Yeah, maybe silence would have been an upgrade here, uh, Ged. Um, yeah, um... Yeah. Arthur says, well, at this point, he is an idiot. Well, yes. Again, I've been 13, too. I remember that also. Um, I didn't think I was an idiot when I was 13. In retrospect, I clearly was, in fact, an idiot. But uh, I definitely did not think that I was an idiot when I was 13. Um, um, yes, Karita, exactly. His reasoning does seem to be along the lines of, I look dumb now, maybe I should try something harder and risk looking even more stupid. But that's what you've got to do to me. Like, uh, he has to try to show that he's not just so incompetent that he can't even get a summoning spell together. Um, so yeah, summon the spirits of the dead, pfft, it ain't no thing, right? I might if I chose. Um... he is very much more worried. Now, think about the use of magic as means to an end, right? Um, rather than learning Ogion's lesson and dialing back the desire to use magic merely as a means to an end, like his aunt the witch does, instead he's doubling down there. Notice how he's taken that a very dangerous step further. Now, the magic, this real 
we don't know anything. We don't know. We know very little yet about magic, and yet calling the spirits of the dead to come to you seems like it's probably a bad idea, right? I mean, I get, I'm gathering that it's difficult, but it also seems a little sketchy. Just guessing that it's a little sketchy, but um, anyway. Um, What I was saying, though, is that notice how he's changed, how he's using magic as a means to an end, right? It's not obvious. It's not just that he is doing magic in order to bring about things that he wants. Now he's doing magic in order that people might think he's a splendid person. It's like now he's even look like the actual consequences. Like what will happen if a spirit of the dead comes, right? Like that. What would be the consequences of bringing a spirit of the dead? It's not only that he's overlooking that. He's like that's not even on the radar screen anymore, right? Now the magic itself is just a means to like the if if the end is not even the thing I'm like the 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 result I'm attempting to bring about with this magic spell. But the end is the the way that people will think about me because I'm able to do this magic spell. That is that is means to an end on a whole new and really dangerous level, right? And good. Oh, Yaravi, that's a really wonderful point. He knows the true name of the Falcon, so, so he and he can summon it, right? But he doesn't understand the Falcon, um, which does bring back the Fourfoil and Ogion's lesson. Had he known the Falcon in all of its ways, he would have understood its reaction. He would have not have been concerned about his own, the perception of his own skill. He'd have been paying attention to the Falcon. Yeah, yeah. Flambefer, exactly. It's like meta means to an end. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it, is, uh, it is going way, way far uh, in the opposite direction of the direction that his teacher Ogion uh, is trying to uh, is trying to push him. Very dangerous, um, and we can see Karita, as you say, it's really easy to get his goat. We can see his weak spot, right? His weakest spot. We talked about his pride before, his desire to be distinct, to be pray to be praised. Notice that that's another one of Le Guin's really really gentle phrases here. Um, she made him tell all the story of his tricks with the mist that had defeated the Kargish warriors, and she listened as if she wondered and admired, but she spoke no praise. That's what he wanted, right? He wanted her to praise him. He wanted to hear her say, wow, that's amazing. You did that? You must be like a soup. I bet you're going to be the greatest Gauntish wizard ever someday, right? She, that's what he wanted, and he didn't get it. And because he didn't get it, he pushes, right? That seems to motivate him for the whole rest of the thing, right? He wants to. And so when now her praise seems to be, like, called into question, right, by his, or, you know, the, the idea of her praising him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um so, yeah, Flamifer, exactly. We can see 
pride is a big deal in him. Like, he has a lot of pride. But it seems that the root of his pride is in insecurity. Right? He... Think about... the Again, there, we see pride in that whole journeyman sorcerers, tinkers, beggars progression. Right? We can see his pride there. But it's not just pride. It's not just vanity. Right? It's insecurity. Right? Can you, can you hear and feel the undertone of, like, what if people think we're beggars? <coughs> what if people mistake us for beggars? Right? They might think I'm a beggar. I need them to know that I'm not a beggar. I, 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 I need to prove I'm not just a beggar. Right? I'm a, I'm apprentice to, like, a great and famous mage. No, really. Like, I'll prove it. Right? I mean, that's, that's his thing all the way through. Um, and yes, Nancy, in Ogeon, we see absolutely the opposite, right? We see this. Uh, Ogeon needs no affirmation. Ogeon needs no recognition, right? What does it all seem to come down to? Knowing who you are, right? No, he doesn't know himself, like Ogeon says he needs to know the forefoil. Right. Um, and we can understand. We can understand based on where he comes from, based on what we can see of his childhood. It makes sense he wouldn't really know who he is. Right. Um, that he would be anxious about establishing himself, making a name for himself, as we say. Right. Which has a very different connotation uh, in Earthsea. Right. But the problem is you can't make your name. Um it's about who you actually are. Anyway. Um, so he goes back and tries to... He opens the books that he's not been given permission to read. The two books that Ogion has there. Um, and starts to look for the, you know, spell for summoning up the dead. Because surely he can do that. I mean... How it, how hard can it be, right? Dead people, goats, pretty much the same. Um, but there's a parallel, right? I mean, that is, in fact, the parallel. Just as he said the spell for, uh, you know, summoning goats uh, without understanding what it was, but he said it and it worked because he's him, right? Um that seems to be his theory here, right? All I have to do is find the spell for the, the... I mean, it's what it's about, right? It's what it's always been about with his aunt and stuff, right? Just tell me what the phrase is and I'll say it and it'll work. So how are going to be summon the dead, honestly? He looked for a spell of self-transformation, but being slow to read the runes yet and understanding little of what he read, he could not find what he sought. These books were very ancient, Ogion having them from his own master, Heleth Farseer, and Heleth from his master, the mage of Paragal, and so back into the times of myth. Small and strange was the writing, overwritten and interlined by many hands, and all those hands were dust now. Yet here and there Ged understood something of what he tried to read, and with the girl's questions and her mockery always in his mind, he stopped on a page that bore a spell of summoning up the spirits of the dead. As he read it, puzzling out the runes and symbols one by one, a horror came over him, 
His eyes were fixed, and he could not lift them till he had finished reading all the spell. Then raising his head, he saw that it was dark in the house. He had been reading without any light in the darkness. He could not now make out the runes when he looked down at the book. Yet the horror grew in him, seeming to hold him bound in his chair. He was cold. Looking over his shoulder, he saw that something was crouching beside the closed door, a shapeless clot of shadow, darker than the darkness. It seemed to reach out towards him, and to whisper, and to call to him in a whisper, but he could not understand the words. The door was flung wide. A man entered with a white flaming about him, a white light flaming about him, a great bright figure who stood aloud, who spoke aloud, fiercely and suddenly. The darkness and the whispering ceased and were dispelled. Yes, you saw Ogion for for uh, uh, for uh, as he appears on the other side. Yes, exactly, Arthur. Um, yeah. Um, yes, you're right, Nancy. Every time Ged knows better, but still makes the wrong decision. Absolutely. Yes. Now you will see Ogion the Silent uncloaked. Um. Yes. Um, okay. What just happened with the darkness? How do we understand this? He stopped on a page that bore a spell of summoning up the spirits of the dead. As he read it, puzzling out the runes and symbols one by one, a horror came over him. His eyes were fixed, and he could not lift them till he had finished reading all the spell. One thing I, I wasn't clear about is whether or not he's saying anything. Is he reading aloud the spell? I would guess he probably is sounding out the words, but um, we're not told that explicitly. Um, notice that the, the thing that is emphasized here is that the spell is acting on him, right? Um, and we see this from the beginning, like as soon as he starts reading it. A horror came over him. His eyes were fixed and he could not lift them till he had finished reading all the spell, right? He himself seems to be powerless... Um, to break it off, right? The spell has power over him right away. Yet the horror grew in him, seeming to hold him bound in his chair. He was cold. Looking over his shoulder, he saw that something was crouching beside the closed door, a shapeless clot of shadow, dark, darker than the darkness. It seemed to reach out towards him and to whisper, and to call to him in a whisper, but he could not understand the words. I, yes, exactly, Noam, I, of course, cannot help but remember only in darkness the light, right? That was running through my head very frequently, um, 
throughout this passage. I don't know that I understand it yet, but it was running through my head in this passage, right? Um, he was reading the book, and when he was reading the spell, not under his own power, right? When he is himself being constrained, it seems, by the spell, he was seeing in the dark, right? While he was reading it, he was reading it without light in the darkness. He was... The connection between... Um, the connection between himself and darkness seems to be um, yeah I, I, I'm not sure I understand it I'm not sure I understand it um, the spell is again I don't want to say enabling him to see in the darkness the spell is is it part of the binding of him to it right that his eyes are trapped by it even when they can't physically see it on their own, right? Um, yeah, Stephen is wondering if he's seeing the actual spell, not even actually the ink on the page, right? It's not about him seeing the ink. It's about him seeing the spell itself in some sense. And that feels right to me. That seems like the kind of thing that we're talking about, right? It's, it's not that he was... Like, I suddenly had the ability to read in the dark. That was cool, right? It's not that at all, right? He was, the spell was before his eyes, but he wasn't reading the book anymore. There seems to be, as we see, a life to it of its own, right? That it is interacting with him. Um, and yes, it's, David Erbach, as you point out, it's, it's, we get the reaching out to him, right? Um... Yeah, let's see. Yes, the shadow, the clot of shadow, reach, seemed to reach out towards him and to whisper and to call to him. To reach out, to whisper, and to call. But he could not understand the words. Um, yeah. David Erbach is wondering what is the use of this spell, and David Attlee had been uh, uh, had been asking like why does like, Ogion even have this book with this spell in it? Um, we don't know. I have no idea what the use of the like um, like why you'd want to call the dead. Like, is there a good time? Is there an appropriate occasion and circumstances and and manner in which to call the dead? Um, would a true wizard? understand the, 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 you know, the, I, I don't know. I certainly don't know it. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, um, it's definitely, um, yeah, James Lebeck, I also see a parallel between the page with strange writing and the call of the shadow in words that he can't understand. Yes. Um, the fact that all of this is, is a beyond his comprehension is a, a clear, a clearly important element. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get Ogeon. But notice he's not named. A man entered, we're told. 
right? He doesn't recognize Ogion for who he is at first. All we see is the contrast between the clot of shadow and the man entered with white light flaming about him. A great, bright figure, right? The clot of shadow darker than the darkness and the great, bright figure who spoke aloud. So we got the clot of shadow darker than the darkness that whispers in words that he can't understand and in a great, bright figure who spoke aloud fiercely and suddenly. The darkness and the whispering ceased and were dispelled. Only in darkness the light. Um, yeah, and James agreed. He speaks something we don't hear. Uh, the whisper is speaking something Ged doesn't understand. Ogion speaks something that we're never told. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Lots to get from this. This is our first, I was to say, our first clear shot of the shadow. Have you noticed, by the way, though, that shadows have already been a motif even before this point? Right? Even before the ship? Um, notice the shadows in the mist in his first spell. Notice the shadows in the river when he's walking naked and nameless across the river, right? To, to receive his name. Um, We've seen that uh, motif already, and now it has taken shape and is lurking there where it can be seen. You do not remember what I told you, that that girl's, mo that that girl's mother, the Lord's wife, is an enchantress? Indeed, Ogion had once said this, but Ged had not paid much attention— though he knew by now that Ogion never told him anything that he had not good reason to tell him. That's rich, isn't it? Um, here he's complaining that Ogion never teaches him anything, and he's not even paying attention to the few things that Ogion does say. I mean, you'd think, right, that, like, dude who never vocalizes, maybe when he vocalizes you should pay attention, right? No, no. Um... The girl herself is half a witch already. It may be the mother who sent the girl to talk to you. It may be she who opened the book to the page you read. The powers she serves are not the powers I serve. Now that's an interesting sentence. I do not know her will, but I know she does not will me well. Ged, listen to me now. Have you never thought how danger must surround power as shadow does light? This sorcery is not a game we play for pleasure or for praise. Think of this, that every word, every act of our, our, of our art is said and is done either for good or for evil. Before you speak or do, you must know the price that is to pay. Yeah, the capitalized art there is really, is really interesting, right? Is really important. Only in power the danger. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's only there, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, or maybe only with danger the power, perhaps. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, this is a long speech, certainly by Ogion's standards, so let's pay attention to it. 
the powers she serves are not the powers I serve. Now, we don't, he doesn't give us any explanation of this, right? But this is the first indication that we've gotten. It's a confirmation that there are powers out there and that people who are doing magic are serving powers in some sense, right? Now, the witch seemed only to be serving herself, as far as we know. But I wonder if Ogion would say it that way. I wonder if he would ha share that opinion of the witch. Would he say that she also serves powers that are not the powers that he serves? I kind of suspect that he might, given how alien the utilitarian perspective that he has learned from the witch is to Ogion. I suspect that he might say this same sentence of, of uh, Ged's aunt, the witch. Don't know for sure, but I think he might. Um, I do not know her will, but I know she does not will me well. Listen to me now. Okay, let's do this, even if Ged doesn't. Have you never thought how danger must surround power as shadow does light? Shadow is to light as danger is to power. Shadow is to light as danger is to power. This sorcery is not a game we play for pleasure or for praise, right? Ogion has absolutely nailed his apprentice's issues, right? Think of this, that every word, every act of our art is said and is done either for good or for evil. Yes, David, magic isn't neutral. It's not merely a tool that can be applied for good or applied for evil. It's every word is, is done, is said and done, either for good or for evil. Yes, power causes danger. Yes, yes. Um, yes. Um, Arthur's wondering if we see a more negative connotation of the word witch than we have seen before. Yes, well, I think what we're seeing here is um, Ogion's perspective on this. Again, I think he would speak similarly of Ged's aunt, honestly. Um, if we were not associating necessarily the word witch with this kind of thing earlier on, perhaps that's because Ged himself didn't perceive it knowing nothing else, right? That was his normal. Um, but maybe the kids in the village are right to be afraid of her, right? They might have a point. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, every word, every act of our art is said and is done either for good or for evil. Before you speak or do, you must know the price that is to pay. Now, that last sentence doesn't go the direction I thought it was going, right? That is, it sounded at first like he was going to merely restate what he had just said, which would be something like this. Every word, every act of our art is said and done either for good or for evil. Before you speak or do, you must know the good or evil consequences of that word or action, right? 
Like, you've got to understand what the consequences, good or evil, will be before you do them. Dolt, right? It's kind of where I thought he was going to go there. But that's not where he goes. Um, all of a sudden, uh, he turns it from the consequences of your actions to the consequences of those consequences, if you see what I mean. Before you speak or do, you must know the price that is to pay. Um, he's going a step further down the line. Everything that we do is going to have, is, is done either for good or for evil. It will have good or evil consequences. And those consequences will lead to, like, someone is going to pay the price for those consequences, either good or ill, right? As we will see later when Ged recapitulates this tragic mistake in uh, judgment, later on, doubling down on it hideously, right? Um, there is a price on both sides, Kate. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know what the price of evil is exactly. Again, we'll see something of it later on. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we'll have to kind of build to that. Ogion is clearly very wise, and I don't yet feel like I'm wise enough to fully understand, even when he's teaching, like, with words and everything, directly like this. Um, yeah. Ogion knelt down and built the fire on the hearth and lit it, for the house was cold. Then, still kneeling, he said in his quiet voice, Ged, my young falcon, you are not bound to me or to my service. You did not come to me, but I to you. You are very young to make this choice, but I cannot make it for you. If you wish, I will send you to Roke Island, where all high arts are taught. Any craft you undertake to learn, you will learn, for your power is great. Greater even than your pride, I hope. I would keep you here with me, for what I have is what you lack, but I will not keep you against your will. Now choose between Ray Albi and Roke. Ged stood dumb, his heart bewildered. He had come to love this man, Ogion, who had healed him with a touch and who had no anger. He loved him and had not known it until now. He looked at the oaken staff leaning in the chimney corner, remembering the radiance of it that had burned out evil from the dark and he yearned to stay with Ogion, to go wandering through the forests with him long and far, learning how to be silent. Yet other cravings were in him that would not be stilled, the wish for glory, the will to act. Ogion seemed a long, Ogion's seemed a long road towards mastery, a slow bypath to follow, when he might go sailing before the sea winds straight to the inmost sea, to the Isle of the Wise, where the air was bright with enchantments, and the Archmage... It's probably pronounced Archmage, but I always pronounced it Archmage from my youth, so that was... It's one of those words, you know, that you read first in books when you're a kid, and you never hear anybody pronouncing out loud, and it's one of those the words for me. Uh, sorry. And the Archmage walked amidst wonders. Master, he said, 
I will go to Roke. Okay. Um, yeah, Kate, I, I did, and I think that my mispron my pronouncing it Archmage was solidified by words like Archbishop and Archdeacon. Yes, yes. When I came to discover them in like Victorian literature and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Um, Devora, wonderful. Um, uh, the difference between yearning, his he yearned to stay with Ogion and other cravings, right? Yearning versus craving. Um, that does seem very important. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian says, I think this is where Ogion shows himself very wise in the uses of power. He has power over Ged as his teacher, but he recognizes when it is better to not use that power and to let Ged go to Roke. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Devorah, that, uh, that difference that you're hearing there between yearn and crave um, is strongly echoed in the greater details that were told there, right? Um, what are his other cravings? The wish for glory, the will to act. Does he keep on, you know, doing a whole lot of nothing with Ogion, or does he go and do things, right? The wish for glory, that is such a bad start, right? Um, it's understandable, but it's it's pretty, it's so bad, right? I mean, the, the red flags are just uh, horrible. And yeah, David, I mean... Uh, my young falcon is so significant, right? Ged, my young falcon, you are not bound to me or my service. Hey, Ged, you know what I'm not going to do here? I'm not going to, I don't know, utter a spell of summoning to make a falcon come and stay on my arm. Like, I'm totally not going to do that. You are the falcon, and I'm going to let you, I'm not going to, I'm not going to constrain you. The way that, you know, you have been routinely constraining falcons your whole young life. Right? Yeah. Um, yes, and Devorah, it is very clear that he thinks he's taking a shortcut. Notice also um, the metaphor that she's so good at this kind of thing. The metaphor that she proactively sets up, right? Ogeons seemed a long road towards mastery, a slow bypath to follow, when he might go sailing before the sea winds straight to the inmost sea, to the Isle of the Wise, where the air was bright with enchantments and the archmage walked amidst wonders. Um, I, so the metaphor that she is pro, proact, uh, pro, uh, yeah, proactively setting up is the sea wind blowing him across the sea to Rook. Right? So we 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 start with that. Like that's it's the fast and straight path, right? Directly to the destination. That's the way. That's so much easier than this slow wandering and looking like a beggar anyway. Um yes. Yes. 
Um, good. David Attlee, of course, you are absolutely right that we should be remembering the extremely stark contrast between Ogion's absolute refusal to constrain Ged in any way and his aunt's attempting to lay a strong binding on him, binding him to her service, right? We see, uh, again, just as you were saying, Brian, Ogion showing himself very wise in the uses of power here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so yes, yeah, so we have to. We should keep in mind that metaphor of like the path that he he has chosen, the sea voyage, right? The 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 straight, fast, running before the wind, um, instead of the long wandering uh, walk, right? That seems like a metaphor we should probably keep in mind as we continue on through the book. Okay, so after the second class, we got through chapter one. That's excellent. I think we're making strong progress, and I have no fears that we're going to be behind. So let's carry on going. Thank you guys for joining me today. This was a lot of fun, um, and I look forward to continuing next week. Uh, thanks, everybody. Don't forget, register for Baymoot if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area. Good night, everybody. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.